Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. Welcome back to the Reliability Matters podcast. I'm so glad you're with me today. Modern electronic assemblies have seen so many changes over the years. In today's era of IoT, the electrification of vehicles, the explosion in the use of bottom-terminated components, the increasing implementation of electronics into harsh environments, all of this has contributed to the increasing complexity and difficulty of building electronic assemblies. While so much in our industry has changed, there is one thing, at least, that has remained constant. The one thing that has remained constant is the need for ESD or electrostatic discharge control. There always was and continues to be the challenge of protecting components from the dangers of static electricity. My guest today is Thomas Riccadelli, founder and CEO of Selectech, a manufacturer of ESD flooring for the electronics assembly industry. Tom is also chairman of the flooring committee of the EOS ESD Association. Tom earned a master's in chemical engineering from MIT and an MBA from the MIT Sloan School of Management. And today, he is my guest on the podcast. So without any further ado, let me welcome Tom to the show. Hey, Tom. Welcome. Hey, Hey, Mike. Great to be here. You know, I'll give you a little behind the scenes. Uh, You and I have met. uh, We had dinner together uh, at an event um, earlier in the year or late last year. Time, I don't know, COVID time, Every, everything blends. <laughs> know, right? Could have been 20 years ago. But, um, but I had forgotten how to pronounce your last name. So I, I, um, I reached out to you and, you know, and, and I kind of spelled it uh, phonetically. Is, is this the right one? And the reason I did that is I went online. Whenever I have a guest with a name that I'm not positive of, I'd like to record the intro before we record this, um, this part of it. So I, I went online, and it was quite literally 50-50, Richie Adali or Rick sure. Adali. And I'm like, well, how funny. Italian is he? How Italian? It's definitely an Italian <laughs> name, but, I mean, if you're, if you're holding on to those Italian roots, it's going to be Richie Adali. And, and, That's right. And uh, otherwise, um, Rick Adali. So I'm glad I got it right, and, and then you, you confirmed it by email. But uh, that was my dilemma yesterday is uh, – <laughs> How, tough how Italian? Tough choice. How how down the Italian well do we go? Um, you know, in in today's economy, as you're well aware, probably too well aware, we suffer supply chain shortages. Everything is in short supply, and you know, they, uh, it was originally billed as a component shortage, and and then it became, you know, a macaroni shortage, a diet coke shortage, and and I know in your business you probably experienced the same thing, but there's one thing that has never fallen in this unprecedented supply chain crisis is one thing we've never run out of, and that is static electricity. <laughs> that, that has remained plentiful and um, uh, readily available and an overabundance of. Um, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, but before I, I do that, I many, many years, I started in this industry in 1985, and I was uh, I was 25 years old in 1985, and I got a my tour of a contract assembly house, and I, I knew nothing about this business. And they had an ESD technology program, and 
this is the way I thought everyone did it until I never saw it again. Uh, they hung metal cables from the ceiling in an XY pattern. So north, south, east, west, metal cables, stretched tight. And they had these metal rings that hung from the cables. And connected to the rings was a wire which went to a wrist strap of some sort. Okay. So they walked around the building dragging these metal rings. Oh, wow. And then when they, if they, if a person was walking south and another person was walking north, they simply swapped wristbands <laughs> so they could oh keep going, right? Uh, and if they had to make a 90-degree a, a change in direction, if they had to go east-west from a north-south route, then, they, again, they had to, you know, grab another ring and put that on and then take the other one off and... It, it was a, a bazaar. It, it reminded me, sure. like, in San Francisco, they have the streetcars, you know, with, the, with mm -hmm. the wires, the electric wires above. Um, it reminded me of that, but with humans. And, sure. <laughs> and I'm like, I guess, I don't know, maybe ESD flooring wasn't common then, or maybe they were on a budget or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But it made the, the freakiest sound as people were dragging metal on metal, you know, everywhere they walked. It just, it sounds I like don't know. Horrible. It, it's, it reminded me of the scene of Jacob Marley in, in um, A Christmas oh, yeah. Carol, right? When he came through the door and he was covered in chains. This is yeah. what it reminded me of. It was quite, quite bizarre. But I think we've come a long way since that. I think so. Yeah, since I, that think so. I hope so. Yes, yeah. you're not selling uh, metal loops and, and cables. No. Um, so most people in our industry are well aware of the dangers of, of static. Um, mm -hmm. I thought I was pretty well aware of it, but... Um, in doing research for this conversation, I was quite surprised at how low that number, the, the, the voltage number can go. Sure. Um, before we get into those details though, just let's, for the sake of our audience who, uh, some of which are, many of which are in this industry, some of which are kind of orbiting around this industry, not quite in it. Um, let's give a, a quick tutorial, if you wouldn't mind, on sure. electrostatic discharge. What is it we're worried about? Why is it harmful? How does it, sure. how does it generate, you know, all of that? Yeah. So, you know, electrostatics, you know, the, the voltage, the charge that gets generated happens when any two materials come into contact and then separate. Um, so you putting your foot on the floor and picking it up as you walk is a separation and you generate a charge. Uh, taking a sweater on, even moving in your chair, any time that happens. And the amount of charge that gets generated will depend on a lot of things. Uh, it'll depend on the materials that are touching and separating. It will depend on um, the, the humidity um, and, and other things. So it it's always there. And I think you started this by saying it's, it seems to be ever present. And we never, we never eliminate it. it like, again, it's always there, but we try to minimize it. To put it in context, when you feel a shock, you're in a dry winter environment and you feel a shock on a doorknob, that's at least 3000 volts. That voltage that you generate just walking around in an uncontrolled winter environment, can it's been measured to be as high as 35,000 volts. I mean, it, it goes, it can get pretty high. And a lot of the things that happen to bring it over to the electronics manufacturing environment, the things that happen in that environment likewise can generate charge. People moving, packages being opened, uh, circuits flowing through plastic tubes, all of that is, you know, things coming into contact, separating. And those voltages can be as high if they're not controlled. 
Now, another point of context, and you had just mentioned that the voltage levels that can damage an exposed circuit are quite low. Um, many of them are under 100 volts. So you're generating, if you're in an uncontrolled situation, you could easily be generating thousands of volts. And yet the circuitry, the chips that you deal with, the devices, could be sensitive to 100 volts or less. Um, there are many customers we have for different reasons, they have chips that are, or devices that are sensitive to five or 10 volts. So it's very, very low. And we're not feeling 100 volts or certainly five or 10 volts. We have no idea. Uh, That's right. We feel, what's the threshold for, for you know, a human awareness of static electricity? Where, where do we feel? Yes, yeah, so, so you feel it at around 3000 volts, right? So you feel that shock on a doorknob. That's when you start to feel it. It gets to be painful at around 7,000 volts. You can see it right in that same range where like, you actually see a little spark. So if we have 100 volts or 500 volts, 1,000 volts, never we have no idea. Never know it. Right, yeah. So even at 1,000 volts, you can do some serious damage. we we'll never know it. Not ever know it. And so that's why it's so important to control it and monitor it. There are ways to monitor it. Um, and then the systems we put in place, you know, we qualify those systems. At, literally, we qualify them at certain voltages, the flooring footwear system that you would use gets qualified to to prevent or control voltage on the human body to under 100 volts typically i mean again if it's a special situation where the device is handled or ultra sensitive you could you could pr uh, procure a flooring footwear system that would control to less than that you know we have systems that we show can control to like 10 volts or 15 volts. So it's, wow. it just depends on the situation. So it's very, very low. It's very, very sensitive. It can be measured and it can be controlled. And it's not just, you know, when I think of ESD control, I think of um, a contract assembler or an OEM building boards mm -hmm. and they're concerned about the components on those boards. Um, I would imagine there's also a concern about equipment that it maybe is used like a oscilloscope, for example, or some mm -hmm. other type of testing equipment. Um, if, if that equipment, if that board is holding a charge and gets plugged into a test lead on a, on a um, Keysight machine or old, you know, HP machine or, or something, mm -hmm. it, 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 it could blow that up, rel relative, you know, uh, figuratively speaking, it could, it could blow right. components in that too, right? It's not just the, 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 the raw component on the board we're building we're concerned about. We're, we're concerned about anything in the building that has sensitive electronics inside of it even if it's all packaged, that can be damaged too, right? It can be, but the, when, you, when they build a board and package it, they put protection, onboard protection in device, uh, devices or the chips, but the, mm -hmm. the, the component, the, the thing, the machine, they all have built-in protection. And typically there's a standard for it. And typically they try to build these um, machines, whatever, to withstand up to 7,000 volts or more, uh, yeah, up to 7,000 volts. So. And they have these little guns where they zap, like you'll take the gun and zap the leads going into the, say, your laptop. And they're supposed to handle 7,000 volts. Now, it's been shown that you can have things go wrong under 7,000 volts, but still like in the thousands of volts level. Like, like in, say, your laptop, if you were to zap one of your inputs at 5,000 volts, you may have like a, you're, you may freeze. It's not going to damage it per se, but it's going to be disruptive. And, you know, we're working in another committee at the ESDA. We're working on a guidance document for the healthcare environment 
where it's an uncontrolled environment. It's not a factory. You can't control who comes in and what they're wearing. And everything is, a, you know, the machines, the things that are used, they're all built for protection. But there are concerns. You don't want to lose data. You don't want people to feel shocks and get and disrupt procedures and things like that. So, you know, in those environments, we think we can help them with um, suggestions that would control voltages to under, say, 2,000 volts. And that would do a lot of good in those types of environments. But certainly in the electronics manufacturing environment where there are chips, you got to be very protective. When I think of ESD control, I think of people, you know, mm -hmm. keeping the uh, voltage um, grounded from people. There are other sources of, of static buildup as well. Am, am I correct? Uh, in addition to just sure. us voltage carrying people? And, and what right. are some of those others? So, um, you know, again, anytime materials, two materials come into contact. And so, like I was describing earlier, um, some of these chips or devices that get fed into, a, say, an SMTA line that go flow through a tube, if the tube is not static protected, that it will generate charges. That's been shown to be uh, damaging. You can have movement of packaging materials within a, a controlled environment that will generate charge. You know, generally plastic or insulative materials are the, are the you know, the evildoers or whatever. Um, so all of that can generate charge. Uh, there are, you know, with flooring, and that's my expertise, obviously, that's designed really for personnel grounding. That's the primary purpose of a floor, uh, an ESD floor. So that's my strength. And, and where these other, I learn a lot being part of the ESDA. The other people there know a lot about all these other things. Um, and I learned from them, but so I get a, a, enough of a sense of it to talk badly about it, I guess, be dangerous. But um, yeah, so there are these other things that can generate charge. They try to limit and eliminate insulators from a protected area. They certainly keep them away from the sensitive devices. Uh, that's part of the 2020 program. Um, and there are methods to reduce charges on those types of things using things like ionization. Um, and so again, I know enough about those things to be dangerous, <laughs> and I know they're, they work hand in hand with the other things that are used to control static. Flooring being flooring is generally kind of pri your, your primary uh, control technology. It's like it's it's sort of where you start, and, and you know I like to think that every every sensitive environment needs to have flooring. But, there are other ways to control it, wrist straps being one. You talked about the scenario where people are walking around with these chains and loops. Yeah, Jacob Marley, right of, yeah, Jacob Marley and the chains, yeah. Right out of an old movie. I mean, that's effective. It would work. I mean, it's not very, um, uh, you know, nice to the employees and all that. So the floor, the floor really, again, it provides the grounding mechanism for the person. But it, that does a major portion of your control is the floor because it, it kind of puts everything on the one playing field. Uh, quite a number of years ago, we were building, designing a machine, uh, mm -hmm. and part of the machine had a, had a bench on it, and we wanted to make sure that uh, the, the bench top surface was you know, ESD safe. And uh, for other reasons, in addition to conductive surface, for other reasons we, uh, that had to do with chemicals and things like that, we decided to make the bench top stainless. So okay. my thought was not being an expert in ESD control, my thought was, well, great, you know, now we're conductive. And then <clears throat> some engineer uh, pointed out to us that we can't just have a, a straight path to ground. I mean, we can't just have a metal surface and, and consider that an ESD safe. It's something to do with 
discharge rate and we needed to throw some resistors in there or something like that. Uh, does that make sense in your world? Is it was, um, so it's definitely a consideration for work surfaces. Flooring, it's a little bit different because you're, again, you're grounding the person and you have footwear and there are all these other resist sort of resistors built into that path. If, and so with, um, you think about how something might be damaged. So if, if a person builds up a charge on their body and they touch a circuit and they discharge into it and it would damage it, right? So that's called the human body model. There's another model called the uh, charge device model. And the theory there is that a device picks up a charge and devices can, like so let's say you had a circuit board with devices on it, chips, and it picks up a charge through the environment in a different way. And it's not grounded so that it's maybe picking up this charge slowly. It might have hundreds of volts, right? And hundreds of volts is, could be damaging, but if it picks it up slowly, it's not going to damage it per se. Um, but now you've got this device and you put it on a highly conductive surface, that charge is going to leave the device almost as if it had come into the device. It's the same, it's the same effect yet backwards. And so it'll damage it. So if the device gets charged to several hundred volts and you ground it and that charge leaves instantly, it's a discharge and it will damage the device. So that's the charge device model. And so for work surfaces where you are handling and working on devices, you tend to want those surfaces to be um, have a resistance in them. We call it dissipative and it's measured in ohms and it, you know, generally the standard is um, above, above 10 to the sixth ohms uh, in resistance and that protects that. Now there are, that assumes that you have to deal with charge device model. There are, there are manufacturers of very, very sensitive components that just make sure those things never attain a charge and they will use metal as work surface. It will do, it will certainly keep charges low. Yeah. Uh, but again, you, you have to worry about char uh, devices picking up a charge in other ways and then discharging too rapidly. Some right. people think the floor needs to be in that same resistance zone for the same reason. That's not true because like I said earlier, um, you, well, number one, you're never working with devices on the floor. It's not the work surface. And not the, intentionally. You have, right. And you have footwear on there. You know, it's most, ESD footwear is has a resistor built into it. They're generally around 10 to the sixth ohms anyway. So the floor um, doesn't have that same restriction. And then, you know, in my experience, if you're trying to maintain under 100 volts on the human body, you want to go with flooring that's below 10 to the sixth ohms. It's just, it's much more effective and it's more reliable and more consistent. I'm going to, I was going to ask you, uh, you talked about uh, footwear. I was going to ask you this question a little bit later, but since you brought it up, it's a great segue. I've mm -hmm. always been curious whenever I do factory visits and see customers and think, or whatever I'm doing, teaching a course at a company, um, you know, I'm, I'm handed the, uh, the old smock that hasn't been, you know, the ESD smock that hasn't been cleaned in 10 years. It's got mystery things in the pockets and, and a pair of heel straps. And sure. I've always thought that the heel straps were potentially a weak link in this whole ESD uh, control program because as humans walk, generally, you know, one, right. one heel comes up, then the next heel comes up, next heel comes up. But generally, there's, in a standard walking environment, there's at least one heel on the ground. So as, as someone's walking, you're, you're, you're down now to one heel, you know, versus two. And, and I can totally see a situation where someone is grabbing a component reel and the component reel is on a top shelf and the person is 
you know, five foot zero. And, and they're leaning up on their tiptoes, grabbing the component reel. And for that moment, when they're making contact with something sensitive, they're not grounded. You know, because chances right. are they're not wearing a wrist strap at that, at that juncture. Mm-hmm. Your wrist straps are normally at tech benches and things like that. Um, that seems to be a, a weak spot in, in connecting the human to your floor. Uh, yeah, it are can there be. better ways? Are there better ways to to um, connect to your floor other than you know heel straps are cheap. You know they're pretty much disposable. Right. You 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 don't save them. You throw them away. Um, so, what are some of the other options? Are there conductive shoes? Are there conductive? Can you put your foot inside a some kind of you know vacuum form baggie that that is conductive? You know what what are the options there? So the other options are you know. It's, that are common are sole grounders. It's a stretchy thing that covers the whole bottom of your foot. Works a lot like a heel strap that has the little conductive strip that you tuck into your sock, which connects it to your body. That's the same as a heel strap. But the heel strap, as you pointed out, it's just a little strap on your heel. So if you're on your toes, reaching up, even if you squat down, your heels come off the ground and you can disconnect from the floor. I've actually done testing where, you know, I'm measuring my body voltage and I have heel straps on and I'm doing the little test and everything looks great. And then I lift my, you know, I stand on my toes and my voltage on my body will instantly go to a few hundred volts, right? Which is above the limit. We want to keep everything under a hundred volts. So it's, it's a, it's a pretty quick change. Now, as soon as I touch back down, I go right back to normal. So you have to think about what the risks are and the, you know, what's the likelihood, the probability that, Someone's going to be off of both heels and be handling a component and discharge. I mean, so I think, you know, you pointed out earlier, the, the heel straps are inexpensive. They're very cost effective. And that's kind of where a lot of people start. The shoes, the sole grounders, they're more expensive, but they cover your whole bottom of your shoe and they're very effective. Then you can buy conductive footwear. Um, they're, you know, Nike makes it, Timberland, there are other manufacturers, Reebok, I know has a good line. Um, and they're much more expensive. You know, you might pay $100 or more for a good pair of shoes. And then you, know, you think about a heel strap, one size fits all, really. You know, so you, you have one size and you got everybody covered. With the shoes, it's not the same. You got different sizes, different styles. I mean, some people like certain kinds because of comfort and whatever. And so I know that, that the companies that uh, serve that portion of the industry, they have huge inventory costs. And then the companies that allow their employees to use them for different reasons. Um, you know, you got to manage that, control it, and you allow certain brands or not other brands. And then one thing that plays into all of this, which is a little bit of a, I want to say a red herring, you, you know, I mentioned earlier, lots of things can, can, can um, impact how much voltage gets generated. And the, the combination of the footwear and the floor, not all footwear works with all flooring and it's not necessarily like knowable ahead of time you get so we say to customers always t- if there's a certain type of footwear you like test it with the flooring that you're using you have to test that combination it's a system and they don't all work i did i was doing some just some exploratory testing about a couple months ago and um we had two different types of flooring we were testing with a number of different types of footwear and there was one type 
that didn't like one of the floors. It just really did not work well. It was met the specification for what flooring need, uh, footwear needs to be on a flooring that met the specification for what flooring needs to be. And we were generating well over 500 volts. So, you know, couldn't have necessarily predicted that. So yeah. we tell people you have to test that combination. Yeah. I, I would imagine that um, Jimmy Choo and, and Gucci and Air Jordans probably don't make uh, ESD, you know, certified yeah, shoes. Know. Yeah, you're probably, um, you're probably relegated to uh, more industrial brands. Uh, let's talk about flooring, which mm -hmm. is your specialty, and that's what your business does. And, and I would assume you also sell other types of flooring outside of the electronic assembly industry space as well, right? I mean, this we do, yeah, yeah. So, um, but for this conversation, obviously, uh, we'll concentrate on ESD flooring. What are the types of floorings offered? Um, are there different technologies? Are there different levels of of static control? Or what what are the basic options that one would have to choose from, or get to choose sure. from when they're yeah. installing a floor? So you know, on the very very sort of inexpensive end, um, the costs are you know you have installed costs and then ongoing maintenance application costs. So the very low end at the beginning is finishes you can take a finish it's a conductive finish and apply it to a floor and it'll give you it will it will perform adequately now won't perform adequately for very long and it has to be reapplied and maintained um but the upfront cost that you know the additional application is fairly inexpensive um we generally i mean if you're in an, an esd controlled electronics manufacturing environment we wouldn't recommend going that route Beyond that, there are paints and epoxy, resinous coatings you can put on directly on the concrete. Those range from moderately inexpensive to expensive. Um, the more expensive systems basically work better longer um, and they're tougher, hold up to, you know, heavy traffic. Those, so those are what we call, um, you know, sort of resinous coatings. Then there are glue down options, um, mostly tiles. Most of that is vinyl. There is also rubber. Um, those are very, very effective. They last, their, their ESD properties last for the, forever for the life of the tile itself. You'd have to wear through the tile. Um, generally very, very durable. Um, they provide a, uh, you know, nice aesthetic to the environment. Um, and then uh, you can also get glue down carpet. Mostly you would not see that in an electronics manufacturing environment. You might see it in a lab type environment where they want some comfort. Uh, you see it often in communications environments, so like uh, FAA towers use it a lot, carpet. I imagine uh, there's some acoustic um, um, attributes to yeah, that as well, right? Without a doubt. Yep. So, they, yeah, provides a, a nice, you know, you don't get the echoing you'd get on a hard surface, like a tile or, or coated concrete. Um, those are the basic options. Now, like, we also make a line of interlocking flooring. We, we actually invented it. Um, and we have a couple of different options there. So they basically perform the same function as some of these glue down tiles, but you don't glue them down. Now, one thing we we try to make very clear to customers is that when you have a flooring, it's a system and it's providing a path to ground. So if you have a glue down tile, part of your system is the glue. Um, and so if there's something wrong right, with the, that glue- The glue has to be conductive, is that, is that right? It, and it has to be, and it can't, 
like if the glue for some reason loses its properties or changes, it changes the system. Um, so it's important to understand that we've seen customers have failures because the glue wasn't applied properly or um, it wasn't the right glue for the concrete that was underneath it or the subfloor. Um, and so you have a failure in the bond and that causes the whole thing to fail. And, and then when that happens, a lot of finger pointing happens. So the customer is not happy. They don't have what they want. They're blaming the tile manufacturer, but it's really not the tile manufacturer's fault. It could be this. So that you get all of that. The well, also, I would imagine there's also surface preparation that, that right. that's a pretty heavy consideration when it comes to any kind of adhesive. Yeah. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the cleaning business. We clean circuit boards and, you know, you know, pre-conformal coating in many applications. So, uh, surface prep is everything in our business. Sure. And I would imagine the same applies to a floor. You you glue a, a carpet down or a tile down to a uh, dirty concrete floor, there's your insulative uh, materials right there, right? Less conductive, yeah, and you could, more insulative. And you could get bond failures. I mean, you you have to even worry about how much moisture is coming up through the concrete from the subsurface. Right. That's a test that has to be done. So it's critical. And so there's another, so if something goes wrong, is it the tile, is it the glue, or is it the guy who put it in? Um, could be all of the above. It could just be that the subsurface, say the moisture content coming through the concrete changed and that does happen. And then that can cause systems to fail. With the interlock, you eliminate a lot of those risks because it doesn't have an adhesive. It's not reliant, it doesn't really require um, Sub, subfloor preparation. You can go over existing flooring and dirty floors and things like that. It's all built into the tile itself. Electrically connects through the interlocks. Um, so you have a complete path to ground. It just simplifies the system, which takes away, you know, possible points of failure. Right. Uh, and we sell, we sell a lot of that. I would think the interlocking would be um, more practical because obviously as as a manufacturing floor changes, as you get more equipment or, or, or take away equipment or, or whatever the case may be, um, one can pick up tile, uh, mm -hmm. tile pieces, put them somewhere else. Uh, I would imagine they're, they're reusable, right? As long as they're in good shape, you can pick them up and move yeah. them. Um, what I, I have a, a memory of many years ago uh, where I decided I thought I would, I would build a home gym in my garage and... Um, I didn't have to use it. You just had to build it, right? That was the, <laughs> that was the exercise, and part of the part of it was this uh, foam floor that had very simple interlocking edges to it. Uh, everyone's seen it out, outside of this industry. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's very common. And over the course of just literally a few months, the the edges would start coming up. They they weren't really being pulled together. They were just they were just interlocked. But if as some tiles begin to curl maybe based on heat and moisture in the garage, whatever, um, they'd start coming apart. They didn't stay together. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought about gluing them down, but I thought, well, that, that defeats the purpose. And I wasn't that committed to the exercise program anyway, so that they got, they got thrown away. But uh, how, do you, how do you keep these things together on a production floor? I mean, you can't have edges popping up and people tripping you know, and hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I remember seeing a video from, that you did and you had some really amazingly simple yet sophisticated uh, pattern around the edge that seemed to pull the tiles together. Um, mm -hmm. Am I describing that correctly? Do you know what I'm talking about? Absolutely, yeah. So we have two interlock systems. One is more industrial. Uh, it's got these like T-tabs that pull themselves together. But the other one has a hidden interlock. 
And if you were to flip it over, you could see it. It's like a zigzag ribbing. Yeah, that's what I Not, saw. So it's almost like if you took a Ziploc, which is straight, and, and made it zigzaggy. It's kind of like that. And the purpose of the zigzag is that it, it actually it's pulling the tile together from multiple directions. So if there's any irregularity in the subfloor, it'll compensate for that. One thing people don't quite understand is if there's no perfectly flat concrete floor, especially in a factory. And, and if you have like a dip in the floor along one line, that dip is longer literally than the area next to it. And so the tile that gets put on that has to accommodate that. When you're trying to, to interlock I, I, tiles. Technically, it has to stretch a little bit or exactly. compress a little bit, right? Because exactly. you can't have one line off by <laughs> by a quarter of an inch or something, right? They all have to be. That's right. Symmetrical. And it adds up. So if it's a big, big factory, that change can add up and you could be way off. And so to get tiles to interlock, and we learned this the hard way, because um, when you interlock them, they don't want to give. And so you sort of counterproductive. So we had to design our interlock to pull itself together in a way that caused the tile to stretch and compress to accommodate all those irregularities, yet still maintain a tight seam. It was not easy to come to that um, that that result, but we did. And our tile's pretty accommodating over pretty irregular surfaces, and yet still has a nice tight seam. It stays together. You know, I don't want to get into pricing, nor do you, in, in this format. Um, but in, in in a generic sense, mm -hmm. uh, is glue down are glue down options less expensive than mm -hmm. um, you know uh, tiles that interlock? I, I would think that the more convenient something is, it kind of drives the price up, and the more permanent something mm -hmm. is, it kind of drives the price down. Uh, is that mm -hmm. a general rule in in your industry? Yeah, the interlocks are more expensive. Um, they have sort of more to them. Um, and, you know, when you, again, I talked about sort of product cost versus total sort of life cost. One thing that comes into play in the, the manufacturers, the electronics, you know, manufacturers who run factories get this. Um, if you were going to do a, an applied product, either a coating or a glue down tile, and it's an existing facility, you have to empty the facility. You have to take all the equipment out. You have to scrape whatever's there off. Generally, you talked about prepping, preparation of the subfloor. You have to do all that, and that's not, um, that's not, it, put it a better, different way, it's disruptive. You know, you, you, a lot of cases you're grinding the concrete or shot blasting it, which creates dust. All that should be done, and, has, and if you want a good permanent bond of what you're applying, it really needs to be done. If you think about all of that, and the cost and the disruption to that, then the cost of the added cost of the interlock starts to become like a cheap, like inexpensive relative to the cost of the disruption, the downtime. I mean, typically an interlocking installation for an existing facility can save like two weeks. So if you were looking say a 10 or 20,000 square foot space, the interlock would be about two weeks faster. Uh, so two weeks of less downtime, two weeks of less disruption. You're not going to be grinding the floor, shot blasting it. So you're not going to get the dust issue that you have to control for if you're doing a glue down. In a brand new facility, you don't have any of those issues. And so the glue down options are very effective. The coating options, very effective. They do a good job. They'll last a very long time. Um, and then if you ever have to 
change it, you could then you look at the interlock, you know, years from then. So oftentimes, the, you know, again, the, the, new, the new facilities, more often than not, would be new, new product. I mean, glue down it here. Glue down, right, right. Yeah. Um, but something where they're adding to an existing facility or, or tearing out something and having to rebuild, that's probably when the individual uh, interlocking tiles make, make a little bit more sense. Uh, how much floor prep, you know, we talked about uh, surface preparation when it comes to glue down uh, mm -hmm. or some kind of conductive paint or something. I would imagine there's still some degree of clean floor required even for the interlocking tiles. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, it's not, you really don't have to do much. I mean, um, you, you wouldn't want to trap anything sort of gross under the floor. So, if, you know, for some reason you had... Unless it was conductive gross, right? But non-conductive yeah, yeah. non gross has to go. You know, if it were like, I don't know, something that was, you, you wouldn't want to be under there. You want to clean it. If there are any major cracks or bumps in the floor, you'd want to, you know, fill those. Right. It's generally can be done pretty quickly. And, and then the other nice thing with the interlock, you're not adhering to it. So let's say you were to use some floor patch to patch a hole. You don't really have to wait for that patch to be fully cured before you snap tiles in on top of it. Right. Yeah, that, that makes Just, sense. Um, is there a difference in lifetime, uh, product life, with the different types of, of ESD flooring options? Does one, does one last last uh, time, but it's super cheap, or uh, and, and the more expensive ones last longer? Uh, is What's the trade-off on, on cost versus um, lifetime? And, and, and just in general, which products yeah. give one the longest life? Yeah, so when I talked, I started earlier, the finishes tend to last a month, two months, three months maybe. Um, so they have to be reapplied all the time. Um, and you have to monitor them to make sure you're, you're in compliance. You know, you'd, have, you'd be measuring the resistance of your floor quite often. So the, And those, you know, again, those are fairly inexpensive. Um, some of the coatings are not permanent ESD properties. They fade over a few years. So more than a few months, but, um, you know, not forever. And you got to keep on top of them and have to reapply them periodically. And then um, some of the more expensive um, resinous systems, you hear of epoxy flooring and now the new urethane systems, they have lifetime electrical properties. There are new additives. It, that's new, actually. They, they did not used to last as long as they do now. They're nanocomposite additives that are used to provide the conductive elements, and they last for the life of the material, which is great. The vinyl products, the glue down vinyl products, they have life, lifetime electrical properties, pretty much consistent throughout the industry. Um, the vinyl is sort of the bread and butter. It's a, it's a good product, it looks good, uh, provides reasonable acoustics, not quite like carpet, but um, you know, it's cleanable, maintainable, durable and lifetime electrical properties. It's just uh, they don't, as long as you keep it clean. Typically, you know, if we see a final floor that's not performing from an ESD standpoint, it's really just, it just needs to be heavily cleaned. It's been, you know, it's been insulated by dirt, basically. So I'm guessing there's two reasons one should clean their floor. Uh, one is to make it look good visually for their staff and their customers. And uh, the other is to um, to make sure there's no 
insulating properties building up on the floor that would that would lose a connection uh, to ground. Um, it, but if the uh, I've seen cases where uh, maybe the janitors pull the wrong bottle of wax out and end up uh, putting office wax on the floor, and 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 I would imagine that's a no no. So uh, tell me about maintenance of the of the product in terms of uh, keeping the surface clean. What products to avoid? What products to um, uh, to go toward? And and maybe how that maintenance if it contributes to ESD protection, how it contributes to it or, or um, how it contributes to the life of the product, if it does, if that all sure, makes sense. Yeah. yeah, so the first thing is what you just said. I mean, it does happen. People use the, uh, I'd say an office generic wax on the floor and it insulates it. It's not, you can, you can strip it off, so it's not an unrecoverable mistake, but um, definitely want to avoid that. Beyond that, you, you, know, you can put a ESD finish on a floor will help make it easier to keep clean. It makes it look shiny. There are some benefits for it from a maintenance standpoint. You want to make sure you're using an ESD, true ESD rated product. There are anti-static finishes that will not give you the properties that will meet an electronics manufacturing environment's needs. Like it won't pass the standards of S20.20. Um, so it's, you know, anti-static products you stay away from. Generally speaking, I mean, we, we sell a finish that works with our products. You know, you're going to want to make sure you, I would, you know, get a recommendation from whomever, whomever sold you the floor and um, make sure you test it in-house. I mentioned earlier that footwear, not all footwear works with all things for various different reasons. You're going to want to make sure if you're using a, an ESD finish that your footwear, you still pass the walking body voltage tests um, with that. And... Uh, yeah, and they, they are, you know, they can be very helpful in terms of keeping the floor looking cleaner longer. Um, we've done some testings he here in our factory where we, you know, we'll have our conductive vinyl, two different pads of it, one we've finished and one we haven't, and then we run the fork truck over it for a couple of weeks, and it's noticeably different. Um, you know, you can really see the difference. And then the one that's coated, it's easier to clean it when it's dirty. The, um, the finishes generally do not have, you know, lifetime ESD properties. So if you put a finish on periodically, you're going to have to reapply it. It's the kind of thing that might last several months, you know, before your ESD properties start to fade. But again, from a maintenance standpoint, there's a benefit to it. So it's a little bit of a trade-off. Some customers love them. Some customers don't use them. Customer's choice. And we can help them with that if they ask us. What are some of the mistakes customers have made? I'm sure in all the years you've been in business, you've seen a few mistakes. Maybe you've come in and rescued them. <laughs> Maybe they went hmm. somewhere else and they made or made a bad purchasing decision or they were sold bad product or whatever the case may be. But what are some of the common um, either misconceptions or mistakes people make when they're choosing a, a specific type of ESD control program for their flooring? Yeah, that's a long list. Um, you know, the anti-static thing is something that comes up a lot. Anti-static products are designed for what we call human comfort. So we talked earlier about those voltage levels. They're really designed to keep voltages below um, a few thousand volts. It's not for an electronics manufacturing environment. So stay away from anti-static. It's not what you want. You have to make sure that the products meet the requirements of generally SAS 20.20. You want a resistance of below 
know, the requirement is below a billion ohms, 10 to the ninth ohms. We, you know, for an electronics manufacturing environment, we strongly recommend below a million ohms, one mega ohm, million ohms, 10 to the sixth, all the same thing. Um, we find much, much better, more consistent performance with all types of footwear if you're below a million ohms, a mega ohm, 10 to the sixth. So that's something that we strongly recommend to people. Um, problems that they have, other problems. Installation is a big one. You know, not prepping properly happens all the time. Uh, subfloor moisture is a culprit in a lot of floor failures. Um, you know, there's there's been this misconception spread around the industry that, you know, certain floors don't need conductive footwear to work in conjunction with them. Absolutely not true. To meet the requirements for electronics manufacturing, the person has to be grounded to the floor. And the only way that can happen is if they're wearing the proper footwear. Uh, so that's, a, that's become a misconception. One I mentioned earlier about, you know, customers thinking they needed a floor above a million ohms because of the, 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 the charge device model problem. So that's really a work surface issue. And people have, you know, they, they crisscross the requirements for work surfaces with the requirements of flooring. They're different. They work differently. They do different things. Like I said, we vastly prefer our customers use flooring that's under a mega ohm, 10 to the sixth ohms. It's just, it's just a much more reliable system. Um, I'm trying to think of other common problems. Those are the big ones. I mean, those are the poster um, children problems. You know, the, right? So the one terms of the two terms I've been, yeah, the two terms I've been staying away from is we, there are two terms, conductive and dissipative, and that's defined in the, in the ESD literature. We're trying to get away from it. Um, the ESD association, I say, when I say we, um, Conductive has historically meant, and it is for flooring, has been defined to be under 10 to the 6th ohms. And then dissipative is above 10 to the 6th, but below 10 to the 9th. Uh, so th they've created those two different categories. And um, the category terms have been misused by different manufacturers. They've, some manufacturers have created their own phraseology around where the resistance level should be of the floor. And they do that to suit what their products do and provide and can do. So it becomes very, very misleading. We're trying to, as an ESD association, again, when I say we, but mm -hmm. um, trying to just get people to use resistance levels. You know, you, you should specify your floor to have a certain resistance level, you know, below 10 to the sixth, below 10 to the ninth, whatever it is that you think is required for your environment. Um, and stay away from the terms because the terms get misused. And then to top all of that off, those same terms get used for packaging. So the packaging that's used to uh, store circuits and whatnot, yet the resistance levels for the packaging are different. So you think you're talking about conductive and it's not, it just gets to be too confusing. So we try to stay away from them. Everybody still uses them. So you talk about certain industry terms that sometimes get mis mis used. Uh, and I, I saw a video the other day from a friend of mine. Um, and he was explaining, um, it's on the subject of ESD, actually, uh, not flooring, but but other other types of ESD control. 
and he showed the the pink packaging material, pink foam packaging material, and he put a device up next to it, and, and all three different pieces all carried a charge. And to your point, those were anti-static foams, and they were not ESD uh, uh, foaming you know, packaging material. Even though they were pink, and we associate if it's pink, it's safe. We can package our stuff in it, but all of them were carrying a significant charge, enough to damage components. So, um, yeah, I guess you do have to use your phraseology careful, uh, carefully. And I do like the idea of just bring it down to resistance. That's kind of the that cuts through all the all the um, interpretations and accents and and um, nuances. Right? It just comes down to resistivity since the since the uh, standards are kind of based on voltage and resistivity, um, measure your um, products based on that. And that way everyone's on the same playing field. The last question, because we're running out of time, the last question is, uh, what do you recommend a customer, a potential customer? How do they vet a supplier of ESD products? And in this, this case, flooring, of course, because that's, mm-hmm. that's your specialty. Um, mm-hmm. Besides just... Call Tom. Right. Besides that, uh, what what types of questions should um, a, a potential customer ask, and what type, if any, of due diligence should a customer or a potential customer perform to make sure they're dealing with a reputable company, um, one that has experience in this industry? And I'm, I might I, I don't want to give any more examples because then I'll be answering my own question, but. Um, what's your recommendation? I'm sure you've seen a lot of, of companies come and go in this, in your space. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a, as, 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 um, nonpartisan as you can get, you know, put yourself up in the press box sure. and look down on your industry. Right. What advice would you give customers? Yeah. In terms of vetting somebody, I mean, you want to look at how long they've been doing it. Uh, we, we really like to you know, again, trying to take myself out of it, but, you know, companies that have a breadth of products, so you're not getting pushed into one type of material just because that's all they have, right? And we, you know, we see situations, every situation is different. Every customer's needs is unique and not every product fits every application. So in some cases, those inexpensive finishes are the right answer. In some cases, you know, the, the, expensive multi-layer epoxy resinous coating systems are the right answer. In some cases, it's the interlock. In some cases, it's a glue down. In some cases, it's carpet. So, you know, you want somebody who's going to give you good advice. Um, you want to look at, at their their experience in the industry, um, certainly references. I mean, you asked me earlier about sort of the problems I've seen. I've seen a lot of problems. Um, and part of that is because, you know, we've got a lot of big customers who have a lot of big floors and sooner or later there are problems and you see them they've had problems from prior products they've used a lot of problems aren't product related they're just situationally related mm-hmm. and you so you want a company that understands all that um, we've certainly seen a lot and understand a lot um, to help give people good advice and you know one thing we really really recommend especially if it's a large installation is a test pad you know, it could be a couple hundred square feet. We we were looking at a really demanding application. I don't want to name names, but we didn't. And this was during COVID. So we did not get the opportunity to visit or vet it. And we did it all over the phone and we never did a test pad. 
and the product that we sold them was not what they needed. And it was, mm -hmm. and it, we ended up in a good solution at the end, but man, it was just a, a little sweating, some hair pulling, anxiety, because the solution that we came in with was not the right one. And if we had known and done the, you know, the test pad at the beginning, we would have started with the right solution. And so, you know, it's not, it's, it doesn't take a lot of time to put down a hundred square feet of something. If it's, a, you know, if it's a big area and it might be particularly challenging due to traffic or demands in the environment, chemicals, you know, if somebody has unique chemicals, we always suggest they test it. And we're happy to provide product for that because it's so much better to solve the problem beforehand. Yeah, a little, a little investment now saves a lot of money later. On both sides, not just from the manufacturer side or supplier side, but from the customer side Absolutely. too. They don't want to. They'd rather redo a hundred square feet than you know a yeah. hundred thousand square feet. Right. And again, we don't like. We always say to people, it's not one size fits all. So, like you know, it's really important to look for a company that has. I think that has multiple types of products. And, yeah. Um, it just it gives you more flexibility, and you you feel like you're going to get the right answer. Um, we take we take particular pride in being really active in the industry, you know, like you pointed out, I am the chair of the foreign committee, you know, and it's because I volunteer to do that. It's time. It's a lot of time. I probably commit more than a month of my time a year to that endeavor. You know, if you were to consolidate it all in, and, you know, I just learn so much from it with all the different people that are there. Um, and I get exposed to all different kinds of concepts outside of flooring. Um, and we're just committed to the industry. I mean, it's it's very important to us. So, I think you you know if you're looking for a company, you you kind of want to look for somebody who makes that commitment. Yeah, I, I totally agree. We do the same thing in our in our part of the world for the electronic assembly industry. We work with the committees and um, yeah. speak at the conferences and things like that. I had a friend of mine. I call them civilian friends, people who aren't in this business. That said, man, you do a lot of public speaking. You go to a lot of meetings. How much do they pay you for that? And I'm like, we're in the wrong business if we think we're going to get paid for that, right? It's a, it's right. a kind of, it's kind of pay it forward, right? Uh, but, yeah. but I, I like you. I'm, I'm a big believer in, you know, be part of your industry. Don't just sell to it. Be part of it. You know, be the industry. Right. And, and right. it, uh, it, it definitely, it takes a lot of work. Takes a lot of investment and time. And uh, some of those yes. standards meetings are extremely frustrating. You know, you want to grind glass in your eye rather than go to another meeting, you know, but, um, but it, it, um, it's a great investment and it pays off in so many other ways, you know, it, you don't get a per diem, but it, I but it so. certainly pays off in other ways. And it keeps you close to the, the pulse, right. Rather than finding out that the standards mm -hmm. have changed and now you have to change all your products, you know, you're, you're, you have a seat at the table and, and you're another country right. from in terms of, of how things should go. Well, Tom, yeah. uh, Riccadelli, not Ricciadelli, Riccadelli, thank you so much <laughs> for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've informed me uh, of a lot. You filled in a lot of the, the uh, blank spaces in my uh, ESD knowledge. So thanks for doing that. And uh, I, uh, for my listening or viewing audience, if you'd like to get a hold of Tom, I'll have his contact information and company information in the show notes. If you're listening to this on your favorite podcast app, um, just go to the show notes and you'll see it. If you're watching this on YouTube, just look down where it says, uh, see more, click that button and I'll have uh, contact information uh, for Tom. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show today. I appreciate your 
your knowledge in ESD flooring, and uh, I appreciate the work you do on the committees um, to uh, keep our products safe. Thanks, Mike. I love this. This was a lot of fun. Same here. Thanks a lot, Tom. Well, that's another episode. Thanks for listening to or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Reliability Matters on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and on our newest channel, Amazon Music, or virtually wherever you get your podcasts. A special thanks to Circuit Assembly Magazine's PCB Chat at pcbchat.com and Ascendo Reliability at reliability.fm for syndicating this show. Thanks also for your questions and episode suggestions. Please keep them coming. You can send comments and episode suggestions to mike at mikeconrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. And be sure and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, click the subscribe button and the bell icon to be notified when new episodes are released. We release new episodes on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month. Once again, thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay happy, and perhaps most importantly, keep doing it right. I'll see you again in two weeks. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.